This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mr. Chief Justice, the police of the court. I have, I have gotten opportunities that have been beyond my wildest dreams. But none of this compares being able to come home to Philadelphia to talk to the folks who are right here and who helped me, um, you know, get through to the other side. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Have you ever had unprotected sex? Well, if you have, the only way you'll know if you've been infected with HIV is to take a quick saliva or blood test. It's free and it's easy. And then, whether you're negative or positive, it's good to know so you can get on with life. And if you test positive, to start the really important early treatment. Today, people with HIV who get treatment can live a normal, healthy life. But if they don't, if they avoid the test and treatment, in around 10 to 15 years, HIV so severely damages their immune system that AIDS develops. It hasn't always been so easy to get tested and treated for HIV. For 22 years, Philadelphia Fight has hosted an entire month of free workshops, trainings, and outreach about HIV and AIDS. This year, Life of the Law traveled to Philly on June 15th to take part in Philadelphia Fight's inspiring work by presenting Live Law, Beyond the Walls, Prison Positive, stories told by people who have done the testing and been tested in the city's jail and prison. Jessica Falcon reached out to Life of the Law in January to ask if she could produce a live law storytelling event at this year's event. Absolutely. What we didn't know was that over the next six months, Jessica would bring together some of the most amazing individuals to share their stories about HIV testing and treatment. First, let's hear from Jessica. She's pursuing a PhD in biomedical engineering and in her spare time is an advocate for people who have tested positive for HIV in Philadelphia. She's deeply motivated by the cause and has chosen activism as her passion. Here's Jessica. When I was in high school and I saw political science or U.S. history or economics on my schedule, that was an automatic skip for me. Um, not that I was a bad student, it's just that I had zero interest in politics and history and social sciences. I excelled in engineering classes, like math classes, physics classes, science classes, which ultimately led me to my career, which is a biomedical engineer. So how am I standing in front of you at a prison summit, a prison and HIV summit? I will explain. So I graduated high school in 2006, exactly 10 years ago. A lot of things happen in 10 years. One, I've aged 10 years. Uh, <laughs> and with age, of course, comes self-awareness. Not only self-awareness of myself, but self-awareness of my surroundings. After a few years at Drexel, once I got comfortable with my courses, 
it was in my bones and in my inherent upbringing and who I am to volunteer. I come from a family of immigrants. My parents immigrated from Venezuela 29 years ago. And volunteering and giving back is something that my parents have always instilled in my siblings and I. So I looked for an organization to volunteer with, which brought me to iPraxis. iPraxis is a non-for-profit um, organization that goes into poor communities of color here in Philadelphia, and we teach middle schoolers about STEM. STEM is science, technology, engineering, and math. So bachelor's in engineering, master's in engineering, and currently pursuing a PhD in engineering, I thought, all right, little kids, STEM, that's the, that's the volunteering job for me. So I go, and I'm volunteering with these moody little seven year, uh, seventh graders, 12-year-olds. And one day, one of the 12-year-olds tells me, he's being very honorary with me, of course, because I'm trying to teach him about DNA extraction and you know why that's important. And it's not important in his world at all. It's important in my world, not his. And he says to me, well, none of this matters because I'm going to be going to jail anyway. Yes, a 12-year-old said that to me. And that right there was so mind-boggling because his version of justice was most likely that he will be incarcerated one day. Meanwhile, I grew up in Connecticut at 12 years old. If I even had this much of an experience with law enforcement, I would be having a chancleta thrown at me from across the room, somehow bending a corner while I'm running and hitting me on the head. I grew up with a Latin mother. That means a Latin style of being reprimanded. Our perspective our, of our trajectory of life is so different. And at that moment, I realized that's, that's not okay. And it's time for me to not just be self-aware about myself, but about the community that I'm in. So at that point, I'd been living in Philadelphia for a few years. And that day, on my way home from volunteering, scienteering, like we call it at iPraxis, for the first time ever, I really noticed everybody who's sitting with me on the subway. And I realized that I'm now a fellow, fellow Philadelphian. I now live in Philadelphia, and I have to give back to the community. And I have to be a part of the place that I call my home. So that's the first step, is organ uh, volunteering with iPraxis realizing that there's a need. Now, how do I get involved with HIV? I start working at St. Christopher's Hospital for Children at the Dorothy Mann Center for Pediatric and Adolescent HIV. And I see, oh my goodness, I did not realize that doctors and nurses and a data analyst, because that's what I'm doing, so and I'm not really even interacting with any of the patients, can love these patients so much and want to do everything for them. Now, how do I 
start getting interested in the prison system. Because remember, I'm not interested in social sciences. I remember in high school thinking to myself, what's the point of studying history? All I ever learn is that we keep making the same mistakes over again. At least in science and technology, you can move forward. So again, no interest. Then about a year ago, like I think a lot of people, I got addicted to a little podcast called Serial. And had a twofold effect. One, I discovered podcasts and that I can use my subway time for more than just aimlessly scrolling on Facebook, but I can educate myself about different fields that I may not have time to uh, focus on while I'm in school. And then I also realized while listening to Serial, our justice system, system is a little twisted, isn't it? And at that point, remember, I had very little interaction with the justice system. For as far away as I thought I was from it, I was also so close to it because everyone is affected by the law. Everybody is affected by the social science of law. Um, I benefited, but I also didn't benefit because if we all can't benefit, then no one's really benefiting. And once I finished Serial, I thought, okay, well, now I just need to listen to more podcasts. And that's when I contacted my very best friend, Sarah Baker, from childhood, who works for the Open Society Foundation in New York. She is my criminal justice guru. That is her field. That's what she does. And she said, you should listen to a podcast called Life of the Law. At that point, there were probably 58, 59 episodes, and I listened to all of them in like three weeks, maybe a month. And every episode is different. It's a different angle about how the law and your life collide, that crossroad where both worlds meet. And until I started listening, I did not realize how much we are all affected and how by not being a part of it, you're not helping anyone, and by just standing on the sidelines and not looking at the people around you on the subway, you're a bystander. And that's, to me, that's not okay. So I just became, in the last year, overwhelmed with the truth that is HIV. I, again, I didn't know any of the statistics until I started working at St. Christopher's, and then I got to learn of Action Aids and Philly Fight and MANA and all these different organizations here in Philadelphia. And I'm like, okay, amazing. And then I wondered, what about the prisons, though? What's, what's going on over there? Because remember, I've got the podcast teaching me about the law and prison, and then I've got HIV on my mind, and then I've got iPraxis and, and poor youth that need our help and all of these things are boiling in my brain. And I'm just thinking, what's, what's going on with our inmates who are HIV positive? How are they being treated? To be honest, I thought I was going to um, research and not find good information. But I've been listening to these stories for the past three months. And... They've all brought me to tears because of how much love and dedication and how many people in the city of Philadelphia are working towards the common goal. So this brings me to today. It's um, Live Law Philadelphia, Prison Positive. 
Wahida Shabazel describes herself as a 50-plus African-American Muslim woman and retired U.S. postal worker who was diagnosed with AIDS in 2003. I had, my name is Wahida Shabazel. When I was 49, which is about 14 years ago, I had the pleasure of spending some time in the Philadelphia prison system. Um, beautiful place up there on State Road. Yeah, 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 right? Um, but my life changed. I was there for six months, and I was there as a direct result of a drug addiction. And that six months changed my life. Um, I was there about four months before I decided to take an, and then there was voluntary testing. Um, because ACOP would come in and they would do presentations on our, in our areas and tell us about HIV prevention and they would offer tests and every time I would turn it down because I just didn't need it, it wasn't, it wasn't in my radar. Um, but at some point, it just kind of kicked in that maybe I need to go get the test. And then it was a, um, it was not a rapid test. Um, it was the test, it was, so this was in 2003. So I had to wait a couple of weeks for the test results to come back. Pretty much forgotten I had taken the test, but when the test came back, I had an AIDS diagnosis. And, um, and it wasn't HIV. So the tester, I remember her saying to me, she was sorry twice. Twice, once that my test came back positive, and she was sorry again because it was AIDS. Um, and so I thought I was going to die in prison. And at that time, I remember feeling like if I just died in here, I'd be all right. When I first got in, I just wanted to get out. But once I got those results, I remember feeling maybe if I just die while I'm in here, I won't have to go out and tell anybody and nobody will ever know. So I thought death was coming. I wished for death. Every night I woke, I went to sleep, I woke up, I woke up alive and I kept waking up alive. And I'm like, you know, what's going on here? Um, I got into care immediately. The lovely Dr. D is here today, Dequilante, uh, who took very good care of me. Thank you so much. It was because of this lady that I first disclosed my HIV status to the world. I went to an event, um, a couple, I think maybe in 2005, I was at an event, and I saw her in the audience. I'm like, wow, that's the doctor who took care of me when I was incarcerated. I had to tell everybody because I had to tell her. I may not ever, ever see her again. I have to tell her that I love her, and, and I thank Thank you so much um, because you saved my life. And I remember one time I asked her, why do I have to come see you every week? Because the women on the block were noticing that I went to see the doctor every week. Everybody didn't go every week. Some people went once a month. And we all knew who we were. There's no secrets in jail. Yeah, so they all, we all knew who we were. But I had to go see her every week. And somebody was starting to, like, one of my cellies was starting to complain to me, why do you got to go see her every week? Some people were sicker than others. You know, when she was really, like, bothering me, and I asked her, and I don't know if you remember this, but I said, why well, I have to come see you every week? She said, because you have AIDS. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I, I guess I do need to be here every week. Um, yeah, so I was like a whopping maybe 88 pounds when I got there, just washed out, and I got that linkage to care that you talked about. But um, something else happened while I was in that jail. Because that linkage to care didn't just happen when I came out of the jail. That linkage to care started when I was in the jail. And I'm looking around right now. I see a case manager that helped me when I first got here. I see my medical providers all throughout the room who even helped me today. But this was a process for me, um, having to come out beyond the bars and live my life and thrive. 
right, and thrive with HIV. Because today, I identify myself as a woman living with HIV. I'm not an HIV woman. I'm not an HIV inmate. I'm a woman living with HIV. Today, I put, I put people first. I don't put the disease first because that's not the first thing in my life. Before I, HIV came into my life, I was already a mother. I was already a grandmother. I was already a wife. I had already went to school. I had a trade. I, had done, I knew how to drive. I knew how to do a lot of things before HIV came along. But it seemed like I had to learn all those things all over again because there's so much stigma um, behind, behind this, this um, ha having this condition. Um, so I had to survive those couple months in jail, um, knowing, that I was, knowing that I was a person living with HIV. And um, during that time, the linkage program sent somebody in to talk with me. I was about to be discharged, so they want me to know where to go, what to do once I got out, so I would have continuity of care. I didn't know that was what was going on, but that's what was going on. When the person came and talked to me, I thought it was a lawyer. It was my, I had official visitor. It was my first official visit I ever had. I didn't know what that meant, but it was myself and this gentleman there, and he started talking to me, and I thought he's going to talk to me about my case, and he started talking to me about HIV. And he told me he had been living with HIV for 20 years, and he told me I wasn't dying, and I needed to hear that. Thank you. I needed to hear that I wasn't dying. And I needed to hear that from somebody that said they were eight, they were a person living with HIV. That person was John Bell, one of my mentors who just passed away recently. And, and here's another thing, right? I remember when John came to see me, you know, because they have a lot of facilities. You have to be, you go wherever they tell you to go. I started off um, up on State Road. I was down North Philly at a nice air-conditioned facility called Community Correctional Facility, CCC or something. Um, I got diagnosed there. I ended up being sent back up State Road, and I ended up at a, at a small little jail called the Cannery which I thought was where they put you at when you get AIDS. I said, well, that must be at the end of the line. Um, and I remember when John Bell came to visit me, he said to me, I went to the other jail, but you, you have been transferred. So I made it up here to see you. And that made me feel like something. It made me feel like somebody because he could have put me at the back of the stack and gone on and seen other people and get to me when he ever got to me sometime whenever he got around. But he actually went left from where he thought I was and came to where I was. And it made me feel, it gave me the hope that I needed to hold on. Um, and he told me there were some people out here waiting to help me. He said, there's some people out here, and they're waiting for you. And they're waiting to help you, and they're waiting to teach you, and they're waiting for you. And, um, and, I, and I, 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 leaped, I took a leap on faith, got out, called him. He gave me four or five numbers. He made sure I had all the numbers, but I called the one I thought he wouldn't answer, and he answered. Yeah, and he answered, and the next thing I knew, he had me going to ACT UP meetings. In addition to getting me linked into care, he had me in a class, an adult literacy health education class that we call Project Teacher Philadelphia Fight. He had me going to ACT UP meetings. He had me going to CHAMP. Hey, I'm at the, at the, the, um, the Democratic headquarters. I'm giving speeches. I'm doing all these things and not really understanding everything, but it felt right. It felt like I had to fight. I felt like if I didn't fight, I felt like I had to fight. Um, I didn't know that I had alternatives. Today I know I have choices. But at that time in my process, I had to fight or else I wouldn't be here. So I was looking at this timeline 
and um, I was putting myself in this timeline, and I look at around 2003 is when I was diagnosed, and then around 2006, we started doing a campaign at the prison to talk about the systemic factors um, that, um, that contribute to a person becoming HIV positive, not just the risk, not just the having unprotected sex or sharing needles, but the poverty, the homelessness, the mental health, and those sort of things, and we called that the root cause analysis, that HIV was a symptom of a larger problem, of larger problems based in social and economic dis disenchantment or dis um, disengagement, but it was based in, so it was an economic and social, it was political. It was medical, right, but it was more, it was more about the factors, it was more about why, you know, it was more about the why. And so that kind of took me out the fetal position. I realized then, well, I don't have to carry all this weight. Um, you know, we all have to take personal responsibility. But I found, I understood that there were systems. Systems that can be fixed, right? Systems that we can challenge our, our decision makers, right? To eradicate, eradicate power, to get people in stable, affordable homes. This is all HIV prevention. I, was, I learned that this was HIV prevention justice. So I start learning about justice. We went back into the jails. We asked for um, um, condoms in jails from ACO um, because I think they kind of fell off. The condoms had become contraband. When I was there, condoms were contraband. Even though Mayor Good went there in 1988 with ACO and and said they could give out condoms, they were contraband. So we renegotiated that policy with the commissioner then, who was um, uh, Commissioner King, along with, along with Bruce Herdman, and we got male and female condoms available um, at that time for, for the inmates. Not just free, but in commissary if they wanted them, but just to have them available. I know I have less than a minute. I'm gonna fast forward. My life has changed um, dramatically. Because of all of the steps that were taken for discharge, the excellent medical care that I got while I was there, the linkage to care that I got, the, the community that I, that I came into, and you guys loved me unconditionally in the state that I was in. So I want to thank my community. I've gotten the opportunity to meet, president, to meet the president, to speak for the president, to represent this country at the United Nations. I have, it's, I have gotten opportunities that's been beyond my wild his dreams, but none of this compares being able to come home to Philadelphia to talk to the folks who are right here and who helped me, um, you know, get through to the other side. So I just want to thank you guys for giving me the opportunity to just share a little bit of my story. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Williams is the program officer at the First Hospital Foundation, which supports programs that serve the most vulnerable populations in Philadelphia County. While completing her master's in public health, she did an internship at the Philadelphia prison system. So it's a tough story to come after. Um, 
but yes, yeah, so I'm Sonia Williams. Um, I am a program officer at a health foundation, so I don't currently work at the Philadelphia prison system, the, the Philadelphia Department of Prisons now, um, but I did have the privilege uh, to be welcomed there as an intern while I was a student for over a year. So I really just wanted to share um, a story about my time there and a couple of the people who inspired me because they're, they're the ones that have been doing all of this amazing work. Um, so a little bit of background. Uh, my, my grandfather was a civil rights attorney. Um, he worked for the NAACP during the civil rights movement. Um, and so, you know, growing up, I grew up with stories like one of his biggest cases uh, where he had the sentence turned over for um, a group of four young black men who were falsely accused of rape um, by, by a young woman who was out one night and wasn't supposed to be, so instead of getting in trouble with her parents, she thought that she would accuse these men and um, put them in jail for life. Um, so, you know, growing up with those kinds of stories as a young black woman, um, there, there was always, you know, this very, very intense criticism of our, of our criminal justice system and, and what that meant and what incarceration meant, um, and jail and prison was that place that was trying to, you know, steal our young black men, um, and change their lives forever. Uh, so as I got older, um, you know, these questions about these systems that were in place were always very central in my mind. Um, and when I first graduated college working in public interest legal services, um, the issue of, of people's health while they were in jail and in prison and coming out really started to become more central um, because I would have clients and they would have all kinds of issues, housing issues, employment issues, but the thing that they wanted to talk about was their diabetes that they couldn't get medication for having come out from jail. It was their, their HIV and their, how expensive their medication was. Um, so, you know, how can, we, how can we take care of people's basic, basic health needs? Um, so uh, I later on went to, I was in school to get my master's in public health, and while you're, while you're getting that degree, um, you, you get to do a field placement somewhere of your choice. And I knew that if I could make it at all possible, I needed to be present in the jails. Um, and it was, it was partially because, you know, I wanted to help in any way that I could, um, being, not being a medical professional. Um, but at the same time, there was this sense that I just, I had to know. I had to really know what was this place. You know, there were, there's this whole criminal justice system in place that had all these gray areas that were failing our community, but then, you know, the one place that wasn't gray was if you were incarcerated. That was the black place. That was the dark place, you know, where, where people went and they either never came back or they came back and were never the same. Um, and I didn't really know how, how I was going to get in um, to the Philly prison system, um, but then through a couple of contacts I was told about um, this one this one man who was kind of presented as this beacon of light, and that was Dr. Herdman, who you've already heard about a couple of times, um, and that you know he would be willing to talk to me, um, and and maybe I could go from there. And so I had this I, this sense that I was somehow like infiltrating, and this this person was my secret pathway um, into getting into the jails and somehow helping and somehow knowing. Um, and uh, you know, so I I arrive. Um, 
it's it's pretty hot. It was the beginning of the summer, and I'm and I'm walking into this this huge facility. I mean, the Philly prison system. It's really it's like, like six different buildings, and they're all really far apart, and they're giant, and it's hot, and you don't really know where they're going. And I'm, I'm really intimidated walking in there. Um, but once I get inside. Um, you know, I'm led upstairs and by a couple of really nice people, and I get to sit outside of Dr. Herman's office, which I notice is just open. The door is, like, wide open. Um, and after a few minutes, he comes out to greet me with this huge smile, right, and just, like, his khakis and, like, really cute glasses and just, you know, welcomes me into his office and proceeds to sit with an MPH intern for two hours to just answer any question that I have, or to just offer up any other information that he thinks might be helpful that I didn't even ask. And very quickly, any idea that I had of infiltrating felt pretty, I I felt pretty ridiculous, Um, and just so thankful to be able to be in the presence of this great person who obviously really, really cared about every single person um, who was incarcerated there at that moment. Um, and, you know, I was trying the whole time and thinking in the back of my head of how I was going to ask him if I could work there, and I didn't even have to. At the end, he, he just offered, um, and I tried to act all casual, like, oh, yeah, sure, if you need help, but I was like, yeah, right? <laughs> so so then, I, then I start what ends up being over a year um, there at PPS, and you know, during that time, I'm really welcomed by, by everyone, and I have so many opportunities to just shadow different staff and people to just allow me to sit down with them and ask questions. And even they would ask me questions about what I thought the medical staff could be doing to, to make things better, which just completely blew my mind. Um, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about one day that, that really affected me a lot, and that was the day um, that I was able to shadow um, the senior medical case manager for, for Action AIDS um, for their HIV linkage program, Odessa, who you'll be hearing from in a little bit. Um, so you know, we started off early in the morning. She has a full day uh, when she gets there, and... Um, you know, I was told that we would be we would be sitting down, you know, with one one client at a time and kind of talking through what it was going to look like coming out. And you know, I had worked in legal services, and I thought, you know, I've I've spoken with clients who were at their lowest moment. I've been yelled at. I've sat through with people while they cried because they felt hopeless. Like I know I can handle this. I know what this is going to be like. It'll be hard, but I got this. Um, and I I did not have this. Um, <laughs> And uh, there's there's a certain particular powerlessness that comes with being incarcerated that really, really cannot cannot be expressed, cannot really be matched anywhere else, and um, that that became so readily apparent. You know, when we sat down to meet with Odessa's first client that day. And, and Odessa is known for really taking her time. You know, whenever we're, we're talking about healthcare services, we're always talking about efficiency, how many numbers can you get in, right? How many people did you see? Um, but we spent over an hour with that first client. And I can't think of one minute of that hour that could have been spared. Um, as we sat down and this man came in, he was in his early 50s, and he had been in and out of jail since he was a teenager. 
So this experience had been his entire life. Um, and he sits with us, and Odessa, you know, at first is just talking with him, you know, clearly knows about his life, has a familiarity and a warmth that is just so, so nice and, and can feel so uncommon. Um, and then proceeds to start walking through what this man's housing, what this man's you know, mental health support is going to look like when he gets out of jail. So for, for 30 days, he'll be able to live here. And then after that, they'll move him in for 60 days, he'll be able to live here. And then he'll be able to get counseling from you know, this MSW student for three months here. And they'll move them over here. And just piece by piece by piece, she's cobbling together any amount of safety that this man can have. And the idea of not having a home, but just being housed is so devastating. And the fact that that had been so much of his life, it was, it was overwhelming. And his eyes just started to get red. And I don't know if Odessa noticed, but my eyes started to get red. And I felt so thankful that it wasn't my job to say or do anything because it was just all I could do to not break down crying because it wasn't my moment to be crying. Um, and I just sat and watched Odessa so, so composed, knowing that all she could do was be there and offer you know, whatever support and services she could to this man um, and just do that with, with such grace um, and with an ability to make him feel like his life wasn't just grave and sad, that, that there was always going to be something else there for him, even if it was 30 days at a time. Um, and then, you know, we get up after an hour or so, and we walk out in the 90-degree heat, because at that point, I don't know, it's like end of July, and walk a good 20 minutes to the next facility to go and wait for an hour now in the freezing waiting room for the next client to do it again. Um, and so that was just, you know, maybe one of the harder emotional days of my life and a regular day for one senior case manager. Um, so really what I took away from my time as an intern is, you know, that there, there isn't this one black place. There is a system that, that is failing our young black men, that is failing our community members with mental health issues, our community members facing homelessness, facing domestic violence, so many things. But within each pieces of that system, there are beautiful people that are doing everything they can to try and make it a little bit better. And if you are someone who is going to take on the piece that's in a prison or a jail, you really, really have to care. Because when Odessa comes and does her job, she has to come and put her purse through a metal detector. She can't open any door if she wants to. A lot of them, she has to wait for a guard to open it. She can't just walk in and see her clients if she wants to. She has to wait to see if a guard is going to bring them down and when. So, so that narrative that can be so damaging for the people who are incarcerated, you're, you're willingly taking on a part of that narrative. You're making that a part of your life because you care enough about the people who are there. Um, and you do it silently. You do it without very much fanfare, if at all. Um, and for that, I just thank all of you. 
Odessa Summers has been the prison medical case manager at Action AIDS for eight years, but that's not the whole story. Odessa has been doing HIV work in the Philadelphia community for 15 years. How does she keep the strength to keep fighting the good fight? A day in the life of Odessa Summers. Good afternoon. Um, I'm Odessa. I'm the senior case manager for Action Aces Prison Program, the Philadelphia Linkage Program. I've been uh, working in Action Aces Prison Program for about eight years now. Um, I've been in the HIV community for about 15 years. Um, I always like to say that I've always been a social worker. Um, even in high school, I was very intrigued. I was always a good listener, and I was always intrigued with troubleshooting people's problems. Okay, so you're trying to beat curfew? All right, let's think about two or three ways we can do that, you know? Um, and um, so uh, I've always just loved people. I always, I always liked to fight for the underdog. I never liked seeing people bullied. Um, and so, you know, once I got to college, um, I, decide, I had to decide what major I wanted to be in. And of course, I did business because most, you know, young people want to do business and be an entrepreneur. But I realized that math wasn't my thing. And so I was able to kind of hone in, okay, I like science, I like people. And so Action Age, I mean, uh, Penn State just rolled out this new degree, biobehavioral health. Behavioral science was new then, really. And so within that once I started working in the major, I realized that I love sex education, and I love talking about sex and stuff like that. So I was the one on campus giving out the condoms at the clubs and, you know, giving out the packets and stuff like that, and I enjoyed it. Um, and then uh, um, I had a summer internship at Action A's. I was a receptionist. And at that time, I was still very much... Um, ignorant about HIV. And so I saw a lot of black women and a lot of young people. And um, I don't know, it just hit me. Like, this is my fight. This is it. This is my health condition that I'm going to fight for. And so from there, I, I've uh, kind of did every part of HIV, counseling and testing, prevention. And so um, I, my family actually, uh, my brother is actually one of the 300 juvenile lifers in the state of Pennsylvania. And so when he was convicted, uh, I was uh, in between jobs. And so my best friend called me and was like, you know, Action Aids is hiring for their prison program. And I'm like, you know, I do not believe in the prison system. They do not provide rehabilitation services. There's nothing about the jail system that I would want to work for. And so um, I actually went to visit my brother down the CFCF, and I talked to him about the situation. And he reminded me that, you know, even us people behind the walls, we need good people working for us, you know. And so I decided to take the job. And uh, one of the things uh, that I've um, realized in doing this work, that, that my role is to really make ensure that all systems are talking to each other. Um, that's one of the biggest things that I pride myself in. And I'm going to give you a really good example. I'm actually working with a gentleman now, 60 years old, diagnosed with schizophrenia, age 19, first, institution, first institutionalization at 19, Norristown State Hospital, first arrest at 19. So all of that coupled. And it kind of makes sense when we hear about the themes, right? Um, 
I've been working with him for the last two years, but I mean, you're talking about a 40 year jail history. So it's way over 30 or 40 arrests in his lifetime. Um, diagnosed with HIV. Um, his last arrest, oh, chronic homelessness also. Um, open wound due to poor diabetes history, poor mobility um, in terms of his physical health. Um, his last arrest was about eight months ago. He stole hair gel and he was arrested. And even though um, his he is he is someone that you can't miss because his schizophrenia is so severe. The medical staff knows him. All of the surrounding hospital ERs know him. Um, he still is being missed by the system. Now, at this point, I'm working with him for a year and a half. And my biggest problem is every time I'm about to get him linked to a service, he gets arrested. And if um, a lot of you may or may not know, but when clients go to jail, services drop. It's just how the policies are written. It's just based on criteria for programs. But anytime a client is arrested, the services that you take time to do paperwork for, push for, and advocate for gets, you know, it really goes away. So um, in December of 2015, I was able to uh, finally get approval for housing through the Office of Mental Health. Of course, in January, he gets arrested. I'm like, not this time, not this time. So I advocated to the Department of Behavioral Health to keep his case open. Um, come to find out, they actually have a forensic department, right? So that actually helped with getting um, his, uh, keep, keeping his case sustained. Because what I could have did was just say, okay, I know he's arrested. The, he doesn't qualify based on the system and not do anything, Right. But good case management doesn't work that way. You still have to knock on the door. You still have to bang on the door. You still have to advocate. And even if that person says no, you even got to go to a second just to make sure, right? Because I'm the type you got to have a plan A and a plan B. So um, Department of Behavioral Health kept, kept his case open. He was referred to Gardenzia's Joy of Living program. So initially, they just wanted to wait for him to get out to interview him to see if he was appropriate. And I'm like, listen, guys, I really need you to, I really need you to interview him while he's in jail. Go to Dr. Herdman. I'm like, Dr. Herdman, I need you to bring in this community-based organization for this guy. I state my case because I've been good at stating cases since I was young because I had one of those moms that if you didn't come straight, she would shoot you down. So you had to have all your facts and everything ready to go, all your T's crossed. So I've always been good at advocating. So I, get, I came to him, I advocated, I gave him all the information he needed, he approved the official visit. Gardenzia comes in, interviews my gentleman, he is a fit. Um, right now, by that time, this is March, he's been in jail at least six months. Now the psych doctor, we got two levels of psych doctors, right? We got the psych doctor from the court and we got the psych doctor from the jail. So uh, every time we go to court, it's being rescheduled because the psych doctor's writing them as incompetent. So I'm like, what the? So I called the psych doctor from the courts thinking that it was him that was writing them out. And he's like, look, the best thing I can tell you, I'm like, look, I got a community placement for him. Jail is not appropriate for him. He will always be incompetent in jail because jail is not the place for him because his symptoms are too severe. So he's always going to get in trouble with the COs. He's always going to get in trouble with the other inmates. Um, and so he was like, look, the best thing I can tell you to do is to tell him to take his medication. So I'm like, oh gosh. 
So I'm still going to court, though. Every court, I'm presenting this letter. I have a community placement. I have a community placement. Finally, the judge says, look, sweetheart, you're so sweet. I see your, your angel wings. But when they write them out as incompetent, I can't touch the case. So that was something new that I learned. So I'm, I'm still following this case. Come to find out, it's actually the psych doctor at the jails. So now I'm calling every psych doctor because I don't know which psych doctor it is. I'm calling every psych doctor to advocate. I have a community placement for him. He doesn't need to be here. Please let him go. Please stop writing him out as incompetent. Finally, we're like at eight months. And I'm like, I'm calling the public defender. I'm like, look, Gardenzia is not going to hold this placement any longer. It's been 90 days. Well, make a long story short, Tuesday, we go into court. I still have my letters because even though I gave it to the public defender 20 times, she still didn't have my letter with the confirmation that Gardenzia is going to take them. But I already know that. So I already got the letters. <laughs> So finally, I guess somebody did something behind closed doors because the judge was like, are we ready to proceed? And I'm just holding my breath. And they're like, yes, we're ready to proceed. So as soon as the judge hears he has a community placement, she's like, fine, he's out of here. Great. And I'm just like, oh, my God, thank you. So with all that being said, even though this gentleman stole probably $3 worth of a, of a product, hair gel or deodorant, it was something to live. It was a product that he needs for everyday hygiene uh, living. The whole process took about eight months. So, you know, uh, Sandy is perfectly right about the average times. Um, but finally, on next Tuesday, he will be directly transported to Gardenzia Joy and Living and not going to Norristown State Hospital. So, absolutely. So it's just, you know, I mean, this is, these are examples, this is example of cases that we're dealing with um, in the jail system. And the most important thing for um, me, again, is to make sure that each system that the client has to uh, access, that I know that information. Like, as a case manager, it is your job to know the community resources, to understand how a client situation, which is a circle peg, fits into the square peg of that criteria. And sometimes it's stretching the truth, bending the truth to get the client in there, you know? Um, and um, I mean, um, and the reason why uh, I do this, I guess, why I, f I fight is because uh, I, I really can't tell you why. I mean, I just, um, it's always been in me and I love doing this job and, uh, yeah, I just thank you for asking me to do this, and I just I appreciate all of you. So thank you. Dr. Deborah De Aquilante is a board-certified infectious disease specialist with Horizon Health, and has been seeing patients in the Philadelphia prison system for 22 years. She conducts the Infectious Disease Clinic and sees all of the incarcerated HIV-positive patients as well as others with infectious diseases. Hello, last but I hope not least, uh, I'm Dr. Deb D'Aquilante, Infectious Disease Physician for the Philadelphia Prison System, which is now Philadelphia Department of Corrections, uh, of Prisons, I'm sorry. And um, I work for Corizon Healthcare. I've been with the same employer for 22 years. Now in the prison, they call me Dr. D. I just want to start out by saying where I came from. Um, 
1994, I finished my fellowship in infectious diseases, and at that time, uh, I was looking for a job like anyone else, but I wanted to start a family, so I wasn't looking to work in a hospital, working like 100 hours a week and never seeing the children that I had hoped to raise. Uh, so I said, uh, I'd like to work maybe more decent hours. So they put the word out and I got a few opportunities to look into. Well, one of them was I got handed this note while I was working in the hospital or something and they need a doctor in the prison. And I'm like, okay, that was not on our radar in medical school, <laughs> residency or anything at that time. And I literally was frightened. I'm like, jail? They said, yeah, they need an infectious disease physician 24 hours a week to take care of HIV patients in prison. Now, I am going to go back a little bit because I think it's important to say what even led me to become an infectious disease physician. Um, they said I have enough time here because I'm the last speaker. <laughs> so whenever I voice a, a, a voice of a person that's a still alive or dead, I commemorate who they are. And I was doing internal medicine at Abington Memorial Hospital. I had finished my residency at Scranton Temple. I went to Temple Med. And, uh, and I thought, oh, wow, internal medicine, I love it. But I thirsted for something more. So I had gone, applied for infectious disease, but then Abington gave me the opportunity to work there overseeing residents and caring for patients that had no doctor. And I put that on hold, but I eventually went back to it two years later. So from 92 to about 91 to 93, I was working at Abington. And while I was there, we're in the horrible phase of the AIDS epidemic. I saw it from the beginning. And I mean, when I say the beginning, I mean it's the 1980s. I'm going back again. I'm like a flashback movie. 1980s, I'm young. I'm like, you know right there in first or second year medical school and I honestly believe in God and I honestly believe in in signs and that's just me I don't push that on anyone but I saw, saw this New England Journal of Medicine sitting there now we didn't even read we're first year second year we're still in the classroom we're not reading journals seeing patients till you're a third year medical student and it was about this man that has AIDS, a gay male with PCP pneumonia. Little did I know that was my destiny, that minute. Now, why did I read that article? Why was that there? Is it a coincidence? I'll tell you as I fast forward. Now, this is the first audience to whom I've said my entire story. I mean, from beginning to end. So then, you know the rest. I graduate. I do internal medicine residency. Now I go to Abington. I'm there. And I have a patient with AIDS. And it's 1992. Oh, man. OK, sorry. This is for Larry. Larry was a gay white male that I was taking care of at that time. We did not have heart. We had nothing, really. It was a death sentence. But they were still my people and I still cared about them, and I still wanted every life, every day of their life to be meaningful. So 
I decided to go to, into infectious diseases the second time, you know, and I got the approved and everything. I'm going to start my fellowship. Well, next thing you know, the first person I told was Larry. I run into his room. I'm like, Larry, guess what? I'm going to, I'm going into infectious diseases. And Larry said, he cried. We both, you know, I had a couple tears, which meant at that time, you're going to be treating AIDS patients because I was a Philadelphia girl. And this is what we did. He died a week later in the bathroom. He collapsed and he died of AIDS because we did not have effective cocktails at that time. So anyway, in spite of that, I, I just felt we were going to have better medicine. So you fast forward, I go to the health department for a year, work with STD. I go to my fellowship. I complete it. Now we're at 1994, and they're telling me there's a job opportunity in the jail. So of course, I'm frightened. Now, at the time of all this, I'm reading a book called Little Dorrit. If I don't know if you know Charles Dickens, he's my favorite author of all times. So I pick up Little Dorrit in my library and I started to read it. It's about a debtor's prison. And I'm thinking, what in God's name am I reading this morbid book about? And it's much like what we see today. It was 1800s England, and if you were in debt, guess what they did? They put you in prison along with your family, like you could really work and pay off your debt. Okay, and little Dorrit lived in the prison because she, even though it was her father that was the prisoner, but the good news was little Dorrit was allowed to go out during the day and do little odd jobs and sew and make money for her family to help them get out of that prison anyway. So it's a self-perpetuating thing. But anyway, it was morbid and I really never finished the book. So I got this job opportunity when I was in the middle of reading the book. So I go there, and the, the medical director at that time, her name was Dorrit, D-O-R-R-I-T. I've never met a Dorrit other than her in my entire life. <laughs> so like God, he didn't just give me a sign. He got a brick. <laughs> he threw it at my head. And like, if you don't get this message, you'll never get another message that I send you. So... When I, and I still didn't put it together. I went to interview, and, and this Dorrit is Christian. Not that that has anything, you know, we're all brothers and sisters of the Lord. But I'll tell you what, wow, she, to me, she was a saint. And the only reason I considered working there was I'm like, if this woman is a, a fabulous doctor, high morals, high ethical code, high standards, and she's working here. Now, if she can work here, then I can work here. So I go home and I tell my husband, and he's like, Dorrit, isn't that the name of that book you're reading? <laughs> so God's like, <clears throat> then fast forward, now I gotta make a decision because I still hadn't made my mind up and it was between the health department had offered me a job and this, so I literally went on my front porch and it was a sunny day. And I asked God, who already gave me a sign, but I, once again, the doubting Thomas had to put her face up into the sky. All right, God, what should I do? Then I've put all the pieces together. I'm like, okay, I know where you want me to go. And I said, yes. I told my parents, and they said, okay, well, a jail. You know, they're God's children too. 
and you take good care of them. And that was, that was it, uneventful. Um, now what ensued was life changing. So I've been there 22 years, July 6th, it'll be 22 years. I can't leave and you'll know why shortly. So I'm going there with the intention of, I'm only gonna be there a few years because once my kids are big, I'll go back to the you know, heavy duty, you know, academic and whatnot. And, no, that didn't happen, excuse me. I'm sorry, Nancy, for that. But I'm keeping it real. Um, so I didn't know what I was getting into. But one thing, it took me about two years to, to get over the fact that I had to go to jail because like Sonia said, we had gave up everything at the gate. It took me 45 minutes to drive there, sometimes an hour. You have to give up everything. You can't bring anything in there. Okay. What? Okay. Well, anyway, th that wasn't the story, but... I learned a lot from all of the people that I met there. And the one story that I was actually here to tell you about, um, since I can't you know, give you 100 stories, I am going to tell you about one incident. I had a gentleman that I met. The name was J.R., and it was over 10 years ago. And he came back from the hospital. He was very ill. He had been in a coma with meningitis and was actually near death. So when he came back, the word from the hospital was he had refused all treatment. He was inter an intravenous drug abuser. He wouldn't let us do a spinal tap. Uh, and, you know, there's no hope for him. He's in a coma. So when he came back to the infirmary, I, um, you know, took care of him aggressively because I never gave up hope. So even though he was in a coma, I'm like, we're going to aggressively bombard him with everything. So two weeks later, he wakes up from the coma. And he's able to speak. And finally, we sit down at one of the metal tables where the inmates are able to eat their lunch that are in the infirmary unit. And he was there, and I was here. And I looked him in the eye, and I said, do you want to live or die? And he said, I want to live. And I said, fine. This is what you got to do. These are the medicines you have to take. You got to follow up with linkage. You got to get a provider in the community. And you got to get off the heroin. Fast forward, six years later, I am given an award from Action Aids. I had to be present in their office, and they went, went to administered me the award, and who gave it to me? Mr. J.R. And not, this is what he said, the story I told you about how he made it through from the day on that he left the prison. Not only was he adherent to his meds, he said, I have not used heroin since then. I go to church every Sunday. I work two jobs, and I'm alive to see my grandchildren grow up. And that is why I'm still there 22 years later. You never give up hope. These are human beings. Their life is precious. There's no difference between an incarcerated patient or any other human being that I care for on the planet. And the one thing I can tell you, I've been on many different sides of the fence as a physician, just like in nursing, they have been. And this is the most rewarding for the following reason. If you think about, you buy a home and it just needs a few repairs, but pretty much it looks good. 
all right, you feel good, you made a, take the worst house in the neighborhood. It's dilapidated, the roof has fallen down. You spend, you, t you labor, you toil, you spend hours, money. After a year or two, it's a palace. How do you feel inside? That is the reward. The reward that I get when you take a human being who's at rock bottom and watch them grow and blossom and then to have the net of the linkage program when they're released to continue that, that is a reward you can't get any other way. And it is the reason that I'm still there. When the voices stop telling me, and I mean the voices of the human beings that I serve, when they stop saying, please don't leave us, we need you here, I'll never leave you. I'll never leave you. Thank you. Live Law, Prison Positive was a co-production of Life of the Law and Philadelphia Fight. To hear all the stories presented at Live Law Philadelphia, stories from Beyond the Walls, Prison Healthcare, and Reentry Summit, visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org. Live Law Philadelphia Prison Positive was produced by Jessica Falcon and Philadelphia Fight, with special thanks to Hannah Zellman. Sound design by Jonathan Hirsch. Post-production by Kirsten Jesuits-Heidel and Ibi Caputo. Howard Gelman is our engineer. If you have a story to tell about the law in your community, your university, or your neighborhood, send us an email. We'd love to work with you to produce a live law storytelling event. If you like stories about the law but have gotten tripped up by the legal system, tune into Life of the Law on iTunes. We tell stories about the law like it is. Stories about block bosses who give out hugs and slugs. Attorneys with 1-800 numbers and ads on TV at 3 a.m., and lawyers who negotiate mineral rights on asteroids. Take a few minutes to post your review of Life of the Law on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Every time we publish a new episode, we send people who have subscribed to our newsletter a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law that includes notes from our reporters, reviews of plays, books, movies, and previews of upcoming episodes. You can subscribe at lifeofthelaw.org. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate, connecting sophisticated listeners with top publishers and thinkers. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, the Proteus Fund, and by you. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a very much appreciated donation to help pay for the direct costs of producing our episodes. It just takes a minute. Next on Life of the Law. I definitely thought that, like, without a doubt, I'm like, I know that I didn't kill anybody. I wouldn't, I wouldn't hurt anybody. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I know I'm going, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to go home. But it didn't happen like that. That's next on Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening. <laughs>